This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode. You know what's not smart? Taking selfies while you're driving. You know what is smart? Hiring with ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., based on Trustpilot rating of hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews. Now our listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is brought to you by GoCD, the open source continuous delivery tool from ThoughtWorks. Modeling and visualizing your entire path to production in a single view, GoCD allows you to troubleshoot a broken pipeline by tracking every change in real time. GoCD supports popular cloud environments such as Kubernetes, Docker, AWS, and more. Release software faster, safer, and more reliably with GoCD. Download and use GoCD for free at gocd.org. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who will hold a grudge against you if you skip voting in the midterm elections, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Steve Hilton, the co-founder and former CEO of CrowdPack. He's been on the show before talking about that. He's also the host of a show on Fox News called The Next Revolution and the author of a new book. Steve, welcome to Recode Decode. Great to be back. I'm going to let you say the title of this book because it makes me laugh. What's wrong with it? I don't Do you promise to burst out laughing like they did um, at the UN when President Trump (laughs) came (laughs) back? That was the appropriate response. Okay. The new book is called Positive Populism. Yes, I know. That makes me Revolutionary (laughs) ideas. Revolutionary ideas to rebuild economic security, family, and community in America. Positive populism. Yes. All right, before we get to it, let's explain what Crowdback. You are a, a British. Uh, political hack, essentially. You worked Thank you for so much several, for um, <laughs> several different people. and then You forgot to mention my restaurant that I started no, I and ran. That was very nice. My corporate social responsibility consulting firm. I don't care about that. All we of talked that. about that before. What I care about. So anyway. So also since the we Hungarian talked, part. Right, I always got to get that talked, in. Since we talked, you were running CrowdPack. Explain CrowdPack yes. for the people. So CrowdPack is a crowdfunding site for politics. And the, and the idea behind it was to make it easier for um candidates, independent candidates and independent-minded candidates of all parties and none to run for office without relying on the traditional mm-hmm. big donors and the party right. machines so that right. when they get elected, they wouldn't be dependent mm-hmm. on anyone other than their constituents. Like an wire for... Well, yeah, and, and just to sort of enable small donors. Small donors obviously have had a great um, success. You know, Obama had great success with small donors. Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders, that's great for those big presidential campaigns. The idea was to bring that that energy and dynamism of the small donor movement right. to every race, right. not just federal, but state and local as well. Mm-hmm. And, and Florida, he did that. Andrew Gillum did that. A lot of people. Different, right. different candidates have different success with that. Exactly. So right. we, we were a platform to enable that. And we started out... Um, very strongly of the view that we ought to be a non-partisan platform. That was mm-hmm. our kind of um, position. Mm-hmm. And when we last spoke, that's what CrowdPack was. Mm-hmm. Um, right at the beginning, actually, everyone said to me, that's crazy. That's not how politics works in America. You're going to have to pick a side. Mm-hmm. You, you won't be able to make the non-partisan thing work because there'll be suspicion of you on both sides. Right. And that basically <laughs> turned out to be true. Um, so I'm pleased to say that CrowdPack um, has done really well in this cycle particularly. But as you could predict, 
the energy in mm -hmm. terms of small donors and people running for office and the kind of independent-minded person running mm -hmm. for office, the person who's not a political hack, who hasn't done it before. That's basically all been on the left. Right. And so we looked at the data um, and basically followed the user. And it turned out that I think the last time I saw the numbers when I, I basically stepped down as CEO earlier in the year, I think it was 87% of the candidates on CrowdPEC were Democrats. So you were running a Democratic organization. Right, and, and more than and like 94% of the dollars raised were on the left. On the left. And so it just increasingly was untenable for me to be heading up that right. organization. because you're not increasingly on the left. Exactly. Right. And so we made a, deci a strategic and decision. What, what, what did they just say, get this? No, it, right was, we, I, it was actually, I initiated the process because mm -hmm. it was clear that actually CrowdPack's success was being held back by the fact that the CEO, me, mm -hmm. was identified as being on the right. Um, and I think that the... And so we went through a process. I initiated a process. We talked to senior management and the board mm -hmm. and said, look, I think it makes sense Wait, for us to Where does something like that change. go? Just create partisan fundraising organizations? What well, happens? Well, that's certainly what CrowdPack now is. So, mm -hmm. so we took a strategic decision to officially become mm -hmm. a progressive left-leaning organization and actually removed the small number of Republican candidates <laughs> from the platform. Like, I, I don't know, like a handful. Were they sort of lefty Republicans? They were slightly, uh, no, I would say they were slightly more the sort of crazy side oh, of okay. Republicans. Right. Now, okay. I know you might challenge that term as being <laughs> <know>. <laughs> applying only to a small group. No, I do, I do challenge that right these days. Everyone has a chance to go crazy for a while. But so you so you left that. How, what, what was the success? How do you look at it as a success? Because you also wanted to be an information vehicle. You yeah, that was an initial, um, mm -hmm. I think we, you know, typical kind of tech um, mistake, frankly, I mm -hmm. think, looking back on it, but, but you learn from them, um, was that I think we wanted to do too many things. We didn't have sufficient focus. So so originally, um, I mean, the initial idea, the very first idea that I pitched to investors when I did was doing mm -hmm. the rounds was, was this very focused crowdfunding right. uh, platform. I, I literally... You, my sort of stupid elevator pitch line was Kickstarter for politics. Right. That was the right. phrase very that I used, go -go. very yeah. much focused yeah. on on the crowdfunding. And then as time went on and I met my co-founder, Adam Bonica, who's a very impressive professor at Stanford of political science, who's really done a lot of brilliant work on data and analyzing campaign finance data and what that can tell you about candidates and so mm -hmm. on. We built out this whole data model right. and we thought, well, that's really great because we won't just enable um, people to give money and candidates to raise money. We can also provide objective information about elections. Mm -hmm. So we become a broader platform. And this is right. what we, we use this phrase, platform for political participation, uh, raising money, running for office, and voting. Right. So we and spend, giving out information. And giving out information. So we, we spent a lot of time building out voter guides and 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 profiles of, of candidates and and races and so on. And in the end, A, that was a distraction, mm -hmm. frankly, for, for our team from the core work that we initially, that was my initial plan, and mm -hmm. in the end was the thing that really took off. And secondly, it was just from a business point of view, not obvious how we would monetize no, would that in a, a in a way that wouldn't that wouldn't compromise the integrity of the information and make people sus suspicious of it. And so, right. in the end, we we decided to drop all of that. Mm -hmm. And it was exactly when we made that focus that things really started to take off. Mm -hmm. And it's still raising money. And yeah, who's running absolutely. it? Who's the CEO? Uh, Gis my co-founder Giselle Cordestani mm -hmm. is running it. And yeah. so, what's your affiliation with it now? Well, I'm literally a, I'm not on the board. I came off the board, and I'm not in the management. And I've had, I just don't have any contact with them. So, because so, then you went over to Fox and have, has this, have this new show. Well, we did it in parallel. The right. show's now about a year old. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. But what, what I mean is, is this increasing? I want to get to your your book in the next section. But the but the increasing politicalization yeah. of things. Talk about that because you know you're leaving a job because of that. Did people complain? There was a bit of that. Right. Um, that but it wasn't era. just that. It was also. Um, things like well, actually, funnily enough, the, the even the designation nonpartisan. Mm -hmm was a barrier. It sounds so much better in British. Oh, yeah. Partisan. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, right. uh, the <laughs> maybe that was the problem. Uh, everyone like should cheese. have said it with, <laughs> with a British accent. Uh, the the <laughs> potential, lives in a British you accent know, one of the things better. we're trying to do is, is to um, build partnerships with right. organizing groups, people who are helping candidates run for office and so on and, and present our tools. There's lots them. of them. Exactly. And some of them we established very good uh, relationships with. And a good example, I think, is Sister District, for example, very mm -hmm. strong working partnership, even when I was there. But there are others who just said, look, I'm sorry, we just don't want to work with a nonpartisan platform. We, 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 we are we're Democrats and we want to work with in an ecosystem that's entirely right. um, Democrat. Democrat. And so that was happening anyway. Yeah, and then we want to target 
made those And so it's not as if orders. my, and then my increasing prominence, I was on TV and, and whatever, and, and, and therefore I'd always been op- openly a conservative, if you mm-hmm. like, um, mm-hmm. although actually I don't really like that label right. either. So I will get to positive right. populism okay. in a minute. But it was never a secret. You and just we, walk around like a conservative. And uh, the, 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 that's right. You but, can't do that in Silicon Valley. Oh, it's very, very dangerous. No, but it's not. I'm joking. God. I'm joking. And then the, the thing is that um, it just, it wasn't as if we were getting, Crowpack was getting a compensating increase in traction amongst Republicans mm-hmm. b- because I was increasingly well-known. That wasn't happening either. Right. So we weren't getting any benefit from your being, from, yeah, from yeah. me being um, on, on TV, as it were, and identified on the Republican side. Um, neither, But it was holding us back. And so I just thought, well, what is the point of this? It makes more sense just to... To be progressive. And also just to, you know, just make... Go where your ca- Exactly right, to catch up right. with the reality. And then right. once you make that decision that we are officially a left-leaning platform, it just makes no sense for me to be running that. Right. And so you you leave and you started this show. How, this show on Fox News called The Next Revolution. Explain that also for people because I want them to get a context. So Sunday nights at 9 Eastern. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do it live. We do it live! Right. Someone <laughs> I've been to. there. I've been on your show. Uh, from Usually from L.A. or the once a month right. uh, from, from New York uh, or T.C. And it's it's a it's a, an opinion show. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does have a theme which comes really from my um, prejudices, I guess, which mm-hmm. is um, it isn't I mean, I say every week, this is the home of positive populism. The book Mm -hmm. title came from what I say every Sunday. And so what I'm trying to do on the show is make an argument for exactly that, for um, a a populist policy agenda that isn't all about being angry and yelling and screaming and and complaining about things. Rather, Mm -hmm. it's about saying, okay, how do we solve the problems Mm -hmm. that have given rise to populist phenomena like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or Brexit or whatever? Mm -hmm. So that's the idea. Um, And we do it every Sunday. And and one of the things I think that's really distinctive about it that we did on the very first show and has really taken off is this segment we do every week called Swamp Watch, Mm -hmm. which I love and has a great response where we actually dive into the anatomy of this phrase everyone now uses, the swamp, um, we're sitting in it in D.C. as we're talking. Um, And the connections between big money and the corporate interests and the donations and the lobbying and the revolving door between Congress and and Mm -hmm. the private sector and the way that all ends up influencing policy. And we do a lot of good work, I think, exposing that. And by the way, we do it in a very independent-minded way. So I've gone after Wilbur Ross and um, Scott Pruitt and Steve Mnuchin and mm-hmm. Ted Cruz most recently. Oh, that's so, easy. Well, but on the, on, the, on the connections between, you know, for example, it's just like, Pruitt's I mean... it's real low-hanging fruit. I agree with you. You're right. Yeah. You know, the, the, the way that, you know, that you serve on yeah. a committee yes. and you regulate, I don't know, the transportation industry right. and then you get a ton of money from right. transportation interests. Right. And that's, so you, you, you take those on. You've yeah. taken on a lot of, like, issues. You went after a whole bunch of things that I was surprised at. Um, so you, so being on... I I don't want to give the wrong impression, right. however. I mean, that that's just to, to, to make sure our listeners understand that it's that I do try and be independent. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you know, it's not like I'm I'm sort of importing a bit of MSNBC into right, Fox. Right, I don't right. want to give people so that impression. you're not Rachel Maddow of Fox News. Well, a little bit. Well, I, I, I like to think that we go deeper into the kind of because my background is in policy and government, yeah. I, I like to think that we go a bit deeper into some of the issues and right. explain why this is instead happening. of a scream fest, right. sort of the, the, the regular scream fest on both on both mm-hmm. a rage or bag of rage, which is what I call Sean Hannity, but you don't have to call him that. Um, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't, my dear colleague <laughs> and friend. In any case, um, but that's 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 the show. That's the show is mad, and and yours is more like let's look at each of these policies. The other thing is, I'm a little I, mad on the show. Like yeah, all of them have. No, to, no, right? I, 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 exactly. I don't want to pretend it's something it's not. But I also would like. I think one other no, dimension to it. Much smarter show. The only well, reason I agreed to go on. Well, I, th- I thank you. I think that the other thing I would say is there's something about that your tone, mm-hmm. one's tone. I try and do it at least with a smile on my face, you know, mm-hmm. literally, but also figuratively, in the sense of trying to be positive about all this craziness that's going on right. and trying to direct it towards solutions. But it's degenerate. I mean, the way it's done is one, it's part of partially entertainment to do this, to create mm-hmm. those panels of people screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. And that, and it's cheap, by the way. It's a really inexpensive way to do it. And it's not smart or substantive or solution-based. They're all, they're, they're all the same in that way because they're not trying to look for solutions. They're trying to, you know, are we not entertained? It's like the gladiators. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think taking on big topics, that used to be like, 
you would be more in the William Sapphire school, like considered conservative opinions that are mm-hmm. then expressed in an intelligent way. Yeah, and, and also the other thing I like doing is having people on uh, who've written interesting books, whether mm-hmm. they're from the right or left or no particular political place, just looking mm-hmm. at an issue. Um, and occasionally topics that I feel strongly about that you just wouldn't expect to see right. um, on Cape A good example was... It's actually my my wife first pointed it out to me, but we, we as a st- and we were both just really horrified. There's an amazing story by a New York Times reporter uh, a couple of months ago on the trade in apes, mm-hmm. in, you know, and just mm-hmm. it was one of those brilliant pieces of reporting. Put it on the front page and just lengthy reporting, and you just read every word. I read every word of it and thought, this is so good and awful, but such a good report. And mm-hmm. let's have him on to talk about it. And and. It was interesting because actually the audience responded really well to that. And you right. might have thought, well, that's not the sort of thing and it's animal welfare and who cares about that. It turns out a lot of people do. Of course, but they get a steady diet of anger. Like, in all the, in, on, again, on both right. sides, it's a steady diet of exactly. I mean, literally the other night my mom said something and then I went and looked on Fox News and that's just what they had right. said. And I was like, oh, my God, she's been near the television or something like that. It was really interesting. She does that all the time. Um, so it's his ability to think on your own about issues is is getting harder. So your show is much like that. So you so you do this weekly, mm-hmm. um, and 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 then it started this from this was this idea of populist positive populism. positive populism. So why don't you start going into that, and we'll talk more about it in the next segment. But what what is how do you describe that? Give me a a quick I definition, think, uh, and we'll get. I think to the, it. the I think the reality is that that word populism. Um, I know it's been around for a long time, but it's been kind of revived in the last few years and applied to these these various political phenomena. On so many sides. Brexit, right. Trump, Bernie Sanders on the left as well, not mm-hmm. just exclusively on the right. But I think the one, if you ask people what is populism, I think that the the to the extent that anyone has any you know thing to say about it, they, mm-hmm. they would say, well, it's you know it's angry, you know it's, it's against yeah. things, it's against the elites, right. it's against yes. I don't know uncontrolled immigration, it's mm-hmm. against um, big business or trade deals or whatever. It's always what it's against. Mm-hmm. And I think that, as I argue in, in the book, there's a lot of good reasons for people to be angry with some of that. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to do was say, okay, fine, you're angry. Um, what? But how are we going to solve that? And there's a line I use, which you know is, is a bit pat, but I say anger without an agenda just leads to further rage and frustration and mm-hmm. actually self-pity. And so you've got to turn that anger into something constructive. And that's really the, the the point of positive populism is like, okay, what are we for? Not just what are, right. what are we against? What is populism for? What's it in favor of? What's it arguing for? So how would you define populism? When we get back in the next section, I want you to talk about sort of more specifics. Of so I, I would say there's, there's, there's four things. Um, and I'm going to say them and you're going to say, well, that's a platitude and I'm going to explain why it's not. So um, the the first thing is that I think it's not particularly ideological. That's why I'm now uncomfortable with labels like conservative or mm-hmm. right or right. It just doesn't feel right to me. It's not ideological. It's very practical and pragmatic. And it's defined, in my view, not by ideology, but by interests. What, what are the interests it's trying to advance? And to me, there are three in particular. It's pro-worker, pro-family, and pro-community. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, who's against that? Right. Well, if you look at the way policy's been constructed and implemented over the last few decades, not just the last, I mean, mm-hmm. this is not a partisan thing against mm-hmm. Obama or whatever, under Obama, Bush, all of them, policy has not been pro-worker. Mm-hmm. It's actually been in favor of the owners of capital yes, and so on. Uh, it hasn't been pro-family. By the way, when I say pro-family, I don't want people to hear that as some kind of, you know. Straight people. Straight no, I mean, I say children, very yeah. clearly in the, in, in, the, in the sections on family, I totally... And, you know, when I worked in the British government, um, we introduced marriage uh, marriage equality, and mm-hmm. I've always been for it. And there's an interesting argument about the way that at the same time as, I'm digressing now, but at the same time as um, marriage equality has advanced, and that's a great thing, uh, marriage has retreated mm-hmm. um, in the in the straight world. That's yeah. kind of an interesting thing. Only gay people want to... Well, gay people, by the way, only gay people want to get married and go into the military. But go ahead. Move well, on. actually, there's a, there's a twi- there's an interesting twist to that, which is also marriage has become a class thing. So the way I put it in the book is now yes. marriage is for gay people and rich people. Yeah, and yeah, that was just there was good. just an interesting article. In the anyway, Times about this. Um, uh, so I think that various things, not just policy, but have 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 actually helped to undermine mm-hmm. families of all kinds. And when you when I say pro community, what that really means is 
um, trying to restore a sense of, I, I think everything's become too centralized. Mm -hmm. Power's become too concentrated, right. both in the economy and in government. And so so d dispersing power Back to the local is, that, is, is a really big theme of this. So, right. And I think that would give people more sense of control over what goes on around them, and that would make them less angry. Right, and more sense of belonging. All right, we're here talking to Steve Hilton. He's the host of The Next Revolution on Fox News. He's also the author of a new book called Popular Populism. He's explaining that. When we get back, we're going to talk about what that means in practice because something's got to give here in this country and across the world. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the PropG Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of PropG Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Steve Hilton. He's the host of The Next Revolution on Fox News, but he's also the author of a book called Popular Populism. He used to run a company in Silicon Valley called CrowdPack, which was trying to do essentially Kickstarter for funding of elections and information. Um, he left that, but and now he's focused on his show and also uh, on this book. So let's give, talk more about popular populism. Positive. So, what, positive popular. Pop, sorry, not popular. Po popular populism. No, I thought it would be a bit better. Anyway. But positive populism. Um, they're never paired together. So yeah. why is that? Let's talk about why why that's happened. Because I think Donald Trump has ridden the wave of angry populism. You, know, you aren't getting enough you got screwed, the elites got you, the whole, yeah. you know. Yeah, and 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 not just him. Let's right. be fair, Bernie, Bernie as well. yes, the same thing, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm and the, and actually their language more. was very similar. It was one of the interesting yeah. things, uh, I think, during the 2016 campaign, 2015 and 2016, those two years, mm -hmm. where they were making their arguments, is there's a huge overlap between the things that they said, Bernie and, and Trump. Um, remember, Trump talked constantly about the other candidates, Bush and, and so on, um, as well as Hillary um, being he, the phrase used, they're, they're the puppets of their donors. He talked mm -hmm. a lot, actually. Yes. I mean, okay, you can say he hasn't done anything about it subsequently, but mm -hmm. in the campaign, he talked a lot about the way that big money was controlling policy. Yes. Exactly like Bernie did. There's an, there was a real alignment with them around trade and the mm -hmm. way they talked about that. Even yeah. immigration. I mean, Bernie had to sort of close that down to get anywhere. But that with Vot, with Ezra Klein, amazing mm -hmm. interview in 2015, right. Bernie gave where he where he was, you know, he said open borders. That's a Koch brothers proposal. What are we going to do? Bring in all these low wage workers? That's going to hurt African American right. kids and whatever. Right. Very similar arguments. So, I think that that is exactly you're right. That it was always what, what we're against. Um, and I think that that's the problem. It's like, well, what are we going to do about but also, it? List the other things are again. They're against. It's like fear. It's based in fear. It's based in you're losing out. It's based in you're getting less. You're getting screwed. You're getting by screwed, the and the other guys doing it. Yes, that's right. Um, and I think that. And is that historic? That's historical. Right? Well, maybe not because I was. I'm listening to the Andrew Jackson book, which is very complex, mm -hmm. actually, much more so than has been written about. He's not Trump at all. He's not even. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has some terrible things he did and also really interesting politician. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but you know, it's throughout U.S. history and throughout history in general. I mean, you could say the French Revolution is populism. How do you look at it over time? Yeah, and the American, actually. Revolution, I mean, yeah. I, I think that's right, especially its focus on, you know, the, I mean, the, that, that thing, again, it sounds a bit of a cliche, but that theme of people power, putting hands mm -hmm. in the power in the hands of people. It's also is called a, mob rule, too. I mean, that's what it's been called sometimes. Well, as long as it's dispersed, Anyway, we can get into that. Yeah. But, um, but I, I want to mention the historical underpinnings. Yeah, funnily enough, I i mean, I'm not a historian. I remember when when um, this word came up I in the last couple of years. I embraced it. Mm -hmm. I, here's the, if we could go back, you know, I worked, as you mentioned earlier, in politics in the UK. My first job out of college uh, was working at the Conservative Party headquarters in the UK when Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister. Um, so 
for various reasons, you know, my 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 parents are Hungarian, and I and I know that there's no connection mm -hmm. directly between communism in Hungary and, mm -hmm. and the Labour Party in the UK. But I kind of I d found myself kind of on the right and identifying with, right. with Thatcher, partly because it's she had a story in the 80s that she was for the workers. By the way, that was quite mm -hmm. interesting. She sort of changed from that anyway. So I've always kind of been on that side of the political fence, but increasingly felt that it didn't really feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, for example, when I, you know, I ro rose through the ranks and then went and did other things and started businesses and came back mm -hmm. when my friend David Cameron went to become the leader. And I worked with him on a policy agenda that a lot of people say, well, that's not conservative. And we were mm -hmm. accused of betraying the principle, right. you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt, yeah, actually, I mean, we didn't say that, but I just felt this label doesn't, really, I don't, I think it's too ideological. It doesn't fit me. Right. And so when the populist word started being th banded around mm -hmm. 2015, 2016, I thought, actually, that I, I like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know anything about its historical mm -hmm. precedent. So I'm not really best placed to comment on that. Mm -hmm. But I think that from what I've read and seen and heard, that is right. It's always been this, well, this kind of resentment-driven. Off with their heads. Yeah, this resentment-driven mm -hmm. um approach. Is that what it's like in Trump populism now? Because that's what it, it's fear-based almost. It's not positive. Well, I think we just got to move beyond that. Yeah, but and, how that's come because on. Because once you're in, once you're there, you've got to actually solve the problem. No, I think people can remain bomb throwers. I mean, you know, there's a bomb throw when you're campaigning, you know that yeah. you're a campaigner and then you have to govern. Yes. But people are very comfortable in the campaign mode. Yes, especially but, this president is very right. Much but I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm my, I'm in the, uh, uh, I guess. No, I didn't say that's you. But I'm, I'm saying this populism woman. now is seen as the Trump is Trump populism. Okay, at least in I this think country, a, and the same thing in other countries. Yeah, um, that's what, and, and so okay, that's really one of the reasons I wanted to write the book mm -hmm. because, and and there's, there's very little. I mean, I don't know whether listeners will be pleased to hear this or or not, but there's very little of. Of Donald Trump or anything in in the book, it's not really about that because my argument is long after he's gone, whether he's it's another two years or to horrify you another mm -hmm. six years, um, long after he's gone, you know we're still going to have these problems because mm -hmm. they're deep structural problems, right? Mm -hmm. About about you know and uh, all through uh, the way we run the economy and society and services like education and training, able to get the economy, the future, all the stuff we often talk about. So those are really deep long term problems and. We're going to have to have some answers to them mm -hmm. long after he's gone, whoever comes next, Democrat, Republican, whatever. And so what I really wanted to contribute to is the start of a conversation right. about an intellectually coherent set of ideas that would adv that would advance what I mean is, the is, interests is, of the people the who have been now, left out. Is the word, and words matter, yeah. uh, now sullied in that way because that's how people think of it. As oh, for sure. I would I absolutely acknowledge that. I say that. And 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 I, I want to... nationalism, it links with... Well, I would say, that you're right, words matter. And I don't see that there's... A, I would say there's nothing... I think racism is one thing mm -hmm. that's obviously not, not okay mm -hmm. and needs to be strongly condemned. Again, I've done that very clearly on the show. Right. I've tried to distinguish between... Right. Racism and xenophobia, but nationalism. Yeah. Well, by th th this, by right. talking about it, and right. but most importantly, I think what I really care about is putting these ideas out there, um, regardless of whether and these arguments out there, you know, I, I, whether or not they, these exact ideas and policies get implemented is not the point. They're to start a conversation, but really to build a movement of people, actually in all parties. I don't think this needs to be a right or left thing. Who who think? Who think about this and say, "Yeah, that's right. I can I can advance the interests of workers um, in our policy conversations and families, and 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 believe in decentralizing power, and that all adds up to a populist message and a populist approach, whether that's through the Democrats or Republicans or Independents or whatever. That's what I care. It's a long term thing, right? All right. So let's go through the through the ones you're saying. So, what would be the policies to help workers? Well, I think one of the most basic things you see is this incredible economic insecurity and anxiety that comes from not being able to live on what you earn and not having a reliable income. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different measures you can you can yep. look at that through. I mean, one that I think is particularly striking, shows how long the problem's been going on, is that if you look at the 80% or so of, I think what the, the term is, non-managerial and non-supervisory workers. Mm -hmm. So, 
And actually, I think that 80-20 thing, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it kind of works in this setting. When I talk about the elites and so on, and of, of course, I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you are. Uh, and I try and distinguish <laughs> between... More elite than I am, do you know that? Of course. Yes. And I, I totally acknowledge that. And like, there's a difference between the elites mm-hmm. and elitism, which right. is a set of policies that help the elite. Right. Um, and so you're so, like a nice elite. Well, I'm, an, <laughs> I'm a sort of traitor to my elite <laughs> class because I'm trying to help the workers, I guess. Anyway, the thing is that um, I think it's not the 1%. That's mm-hmm. the point I was going to make that we always hear about. It's more mm-hmm. like the top 20%. That's right. sort of There's a brilliant, brilliant piece in the Atlantic cover story a couple of uh, months ago that they, the, the author talked about the 9.9%, not the 99%, as being the real. And, and, the, and this notion of the inherited meritocracy, people who've got there on their own merits and have risen through the ranks of education and hard work and now kind of have captured those benefits and, and people are left behind. So this data point I was going to give you, 80% or so of non-managerial, non-supervisory workers, if you take inflation into account, mm-hmm. the way their incomes have been flat, flat. since 1972. Flat. Yes. This is not just like the last, you know, I the Great Recession. I was talking about this the other day. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. There's been this huge disconnect that used mm-hmm. to be there between economic growth, productivity in the economy, and incomes, where they all went up together, roughly. Mm-hmm. And around the early 70s, that relationship just broke. Right. And suddenly, the workers' pay was flat, but everyone else went, the economy still mm-hmm. grew and whatever. Mm-hmm. So... And there's lots of other measures too, and the change in the labour so market. Policies for that one. Well, the, the 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 number one thing I think is to assert a principle, which is if you work full time, you should be able to live on what you earn. Mm-hmm. At the moment, there are tens of millions, probably more. I haven't looked at the exact data who who do work full-time and can't live on what they earn. So earned income tax credits. Because they get all these subsidies of various kinds from the (laughs) the government. Um, Exactly, tax credits and food stamps and so Mm -hmm. on. And of course, those things are vital because you couldn't live without them. But my argument is, you should you should get that from your employer, right. not from the government or another source. Yeah, that's a hard sell, Steve. Okay. And so my solu- the idea in the book is what I call the business-friendly living wage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really interesting, actually. Um, this it, it may sort of highlight a, 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 an area for compromise. So Ro Khanna mm-hmm. um, from yep. Silicon Valley, where, uh, where I'm based, and um, Bernie mm-hmm. just introduced a bill the other day week, I think it was, called the Stop Bezos Act. And the Bezos thing was some kind of acronym. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made the point, which I 100% agree with, which is this this phenomenon is basically a subsidy to corporate America. Mm-hmm. So they pay their workers too little for them to live on, and the government tops up their pay so they can get away with mm-hmm. low wages. Right. But at the same time, there's another bit of the equation, which is the government takes money from the companies in the form of taxation, corporate taxes and payroll taxes. Mm-hmm. So my argument is let's require, let's raise the, the minimum wage to the level of the living wage, right. which varies from place to place depending mm-hmm. on housing costs and transportation costs, but make sure that you can live on what you earn. You really can, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to be a very high in right. some places, mm-hmm. like way higher than the minimum wage. Right. But at the same time, let's cut their corporate or payroll taxes or both right. or some combination so that the net impact on the bottom line is neutral so that what they don't do, which is also counterproductive, is have to lay off workers because they're more expensive or replace them with right. automation. Now, the Bezos, Stop Bezos bill, the Bernie sanders Rokana thing, addresses the exact same problem, but through what I would say is a, is a worse uh, solution, which is to, to take the amount of the subsidy and tax them more. Right. So that's just increasing the tax, which I don't think is a particularly helpful thing. But right. it shows that we're on the same ground. You know, so, there's a lot of shared ground. Meaning, but doing minimum wage is so controversial. It's the same thing. They consider it taxing. That's the same thing, you know. Yeah, but someone's got to pay. I mean, right. you know, I mean, of course, and then there are other things yeah. like why is housing so expensive in the first place? Right. And there's a lot of argument there. I had sort of spat with, I was on Bill Maher last week, and I made the point that, um, uh, Zoning regulations are a huge factor in mm-hmm. housing being so expensive, which is true because there's not mm-hmm. enough being built. And one no, of the reasons there's right. not enough being built is because right. the zoning regulations yeah. favor the people who already have yes, property nearly, rather than those. Yes. Exactly. So, look, there's lots of things we can do also to reduce the cost of living mm-hmm. as well. But I think there's a basic dignity point, which is if you work full time. And by, by the way, a lot more people still do. I know there's this, you know, we all talk about the gig economy and mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and, but, and there's a lot we could do there to make that. Fairer. Yes, of course. That's and something less, Gavin Newsom's been pushing, the idea that we change the way yes, economic incentives. I, I mean, totally agree. But still, incentives. most people do still work yeah. full, in full-time regular jobs, actually. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just all disappeared in favor of everyone. changing, though, yeah. Yeah, but, but not as rapid. Mm-hmm. Anyway, look, that there's a basic 
dignity point and a moral point, I think, there. And so that's just one idea. Creates broken societies when people feel on the edge. Exactly. And then there are other things that you could do. For example, I mean, again, this is not not, not, not particularly sort of new thinking, but perhaps Mm -hmm. new from someone, uh, you know, on Fox News, (laughs) is that you've got... um, these, there are multiple ways in which the owners of businesses um, uh, dis- treat workers unfairly. A great mm-hmm. example is non-competes, mm-hmm. which are actually outlawed in California, but the po- generally. But and one of the reasons I think you've got such a dynamic, you know, tech yeah. sector, you can just quickly go to a competitor and whatever. Um, but th- I think it's something like eighteen percent of American workers are now covered by non-compete agreements, right. which is insane. These were supposed to be for those sort of genius scientists who've right, got they can't walk incredi- the door with them. but they're being applied to people who work in in fast food restaurants to mm-hmm. stop them getting a, sm- a modest pay raise by yeah. leaving McDonald's and going to Burger King. Yeah. It's completely ridiculous. Yeah. The, so there's lots of smaller steps as well that you can take that, and right. and that you can that add up to a pro-worker policy agenda. And I think everyone should be in favor of that. Right. All right. When we get back. We're going to talk more about the other policies that Steve is espousing. He does. You sound a little communist-y. I like it. I like this. Oh, my God. Now I'm really in trouble. (laughs) Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Steve Hilton. We're talking about his new book about positive populism. Populism is now sort of a dirty word with a lot of people now, and it feels scary. It feels populism mm-hmm. right now feels awfully scary. Very mob rule, nationalistic, mm-hmm. racist, you know, all these things that are being linked with it. And it's largely due to Donald Trump's pushing it. And in other parts of the world, we always forget other parts of the world where mm-hmm. it's it's surging. It's a lot to do around immigration and, and, mm-hmm. and issues around that, too. So the second book, you were just talking about how to help the worker. The second mm-hmm. one is how to help families. I yeah. think most people agree that this country is family anti-friendly, mm-hmm. uh, anti anti friendly to families, essentially. Yes. There's no policies yeah. about maternity leave, except, exactly. say, in Silicon Valley, which has very strong ones, actually, or, or yes. California. Um, some people think those are onerous. What are their family policies? I would assume yeah. maternity leave, better Definitely, maternity leave. all of that. I mean, <laughs> but I, I won't focus on those because I right. you can basically assume I agree with all of those. Right. Um, and introduced many of them as part of the British government where I worked, or well, they were already there in the UK mm-hmm. anyway. Um I want to talk about some new things. I mean, one, one of the things, and, and just to take a step back from it, I think one of the, the problems in this area has been that the right, for years and years, has gone on and on about family values. Family values, yes. All the time, yes. right? But first of all, that hasn't extended to everyone, so it's mm-hmm. excluded um, non-traditional families, as yes, it were. We which so we I, Exactly, so I'm dead against that. Um, but the other the other sort of practical thing is that they've, it, they've not been prepared to... to accept or even look at any kind of active help for families. So it's all sort of lectures and preaching about yes. families are good and we love families. But mm-hmm. like when it comes to actually helping, it's, oh, that's nanny state, big government. Yes, right. So that's been a problem. But yeah. equally on the left, I think you've had a you've had a problem with um, a rhetoric about supporting working families with mm-hmm. practical measures. That's great. But also a reluctance to engage in some, you know, really kind of pretty obvious science now about the importance of family stability and, mm-hmm. and so on. And I think that the answer to both is, in the end, not ideological, but practical. So I'll give you one specific example, which is that if you look at the data on when families break up, whether they're married or not, um, if you've got, if you just look at the, the peak time period when typically a family that's together when one partner leaves. It's not universal, but the peak time is within the first year mm-hmm. of uh, the first child being born. Right. And it's pretty obvious why yeah, that would be. Time. It's incredibly University. tough. It's stressful. You don't get any sleep. You argue, mm-hmm. you know, etc. And so there's so much evidence now that practical help through that incredibly difficult period can help keep families together and, and, and kids growing up um, in a more stable home and in on the right track. And there's two things I'd point to that are practical examples. First of all, in the UK, there's a um, 
Well, I just start with here in Colorado. It started in Colorado in the 70s. There's something called the Nurse Family Partnership, mm -hmm. which is one of the best evaluated social policy interventions in history, mm -hmm. in the sense that the, the, the number of times it's been evaluated and shown to be successful. But it's limited to at-risk populations where, mm -hmm. where you really send... And, and what, the way it works is a trained nurse... Uh, visits at your yeah, home. They do it in and, Louisiana. There's a whole bunch of them. Right. And, and, they, and they just help with practical things, literally, you know, getting mm -hmm. ready for the birth and then after the birth, literally, how do I get the baby to sleep? You know, mm -hmm. it's driving me crazy. You know, what feeding and mm -hmm. all these things. And then, and just sort of all, the, all those kind of basic questions that is assumed that just sort of people know the answers to and because there's millions of books and videos and online right. things. But it's not the same as someone who really knows what they're Absolutely. doing that you trust coming to your house. Positive government intervention. Right. And they, at the moment, that is very patchy um, and underfunded mm -hmm. and so on. And so my proposal... And it's not available for everybody. No, and it's explicitly designed right now as an, mm -hmm. an intervention. Which makes sense. Which the, makes sense. That's the first popular, the most... Sure, but my proposal is, I, I call it that. universal home visiting. Mm -hmm. I think it should be available. Look, right. you don't want to force it on people if they right. really don't want it. But <laughs> I think that, you know, the, the, I can't imagine a family that wouldn't benefit from it. I mean, right. you know, the most sort of literate and well-educated and well-informed family, you know, and they can't it, do it either. And it's incredibly, you know, Kate Boo wrote an amazing piece, if you've ever want to read it, about mm -hmm. swamp nurses. And it's this, uh -huh. it's a program in Louisiana. Oh, interesting. Like it's an astonishing, it's a sad story because it's almost impossible mm -hmm. to pull some of these people out of the, the abject poverty and, and ignorance. They're, you know, yeah, right. lack of education they're in. Um, and it's wonderful. But, you know, you sat there and you were hoping so hard that this would work because it made right. sense. It made sense. Yeah, but the other thing I'd say is that certainly, and I spent a lot of time on this in the UK, there's a program in the UK called Health, uh, Health Visitors, which mm -hmm. started, I think, in the in the Victorian era. And um, I wanted to greatly expand. And the thing that um, is interesting is like the immediate reason for, for, for doing it is help with a new baby. Mm -hmm. um, and mothers are desperate for help right. with new. Um, and so it's a good moment to, to yes. kind of establish that trusting yes, relationship so with a professional. Like a but actually, what really is great is over the time, you know, the visits can get less frequent and so on from sort of every other day to once a week to once mm -hmm. a month and so on. But actually, they become trusted to help with other things and all these other social issues that are going right. on. Maybe the your partner's drinking too much or there's a drug addiction in, mm -hmm. incipient problem or just there's a health, the health isn't that great in the family. They don't know. and or, or just, you know, mental illnesses, you know. And, and what they can do is connect them to local resources that can help and say, right. you know what, they're, it feels to me like you, in a gentle way, not in a nanny well, way. because they in, would know them. I know them. And, and of course, part of the program would be training those professional, the visitors, as it were, in terms of what resources are available. And there's a whole community aspect to that. Mm -hmm. um, not, again, none of this has to be the government. It needs to be funded by the government. And right. that's a theme throughout because otherwise right. it's not going to happen. Right. You're going to make this universal by right. relying on charity. And then the last one, community. And I want to sort of approach this in a way because most people feel that communities are breaking apart, local communities mm -hmm. especially. You know, oddly, Tom Friedman, this is a big yeah. thing of Tom Friedman's yeah. in his last book, and the idea that we move things, we push things down to the communities, yes. which I think has been sort of mutated by ultra-conservatives about, like, all states' rights, which has been an issue yeah. in this country for, from the beginning of the, from the very beginnings of yeah. time. Um, when actually it's a, it's a, local is a great idea, is a great idea. It's just not, it's, it's done in a way where it feels ignorant or it feels, you know, not that. that yeah, the also local doesn't mean state. I mean, right. I think that there's a really, I, I no, try and sort of take, way smaller. And so I, I, I run through the kind of, the, the pathway of decentralization, as mm -hmm. it were. Yes, it's true that we should decentralize something from the federal level to the state level. Yes, but that's, you don't stop there. Well, I think healthcare, for example, is a right. good example. Um, uh, but way further than that, from the state, I mean, you know, California, fifth biggest in the economy in the world. If you put all the power up the, in Sacramento, that is hardly right. localization. So from the states to cities and counties, but the, I, the, the, the area I'm really interested in and I think this is probably the freshest mm -hmm. um, area in the book, is the neighborhood. I think the neighborhood is potentially an interesting area because mm -hmm. you've got their uh, potential human connections because right. you can actually see and t feel and meet people. Feel, mm -hmm. probably shouldn't use that word. But you know what I mean? <laughs> Anymore. <laughs> see, touch, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You can meet people and you look in there. It's, it's a minefield out there now. I know, I know. Um, but the thing is that you know, that's not going to happen just like that, because you tell people, oh, you should get together and do things. Right. People are busy. There, you've got to give practical reasons for doing it and mm -hmm. a benefit. And so, one one starting point. There's there's a, there's a there's a 
I mean, it's a it's a cliche now, and there's lots of uh, it's been written about a lot and replicated a lot. But years ago, one of my great friends from university, she moved here, married a guy from New York, and 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 they they've been living in, in Brooklyn for a long time. And mm-hmm. there's a place called the Park Slope Food Co-op that they took yes. me to, which is very well known. Um, and the lovely thing about it is that it's a true cooperative in the sense that um, you can only shop there if you are a member, and then you work, and there. you have to work. Yeah, there's, that, there's one in San Francisco, right? It's fantastic, and just like two and three quarter hours a week or whatever. And, and, and there's a connection there. And what it really has made that place is a community center because there's a reason for going, mm-hmm. right? Yes, you've got to go and do your work, but you get benefits, low prices, whatever. So my question was, well, can we try and apply that thinking to mm-hmm. other local services? So there's a concept in the book called civic service where let's try and think of, and there's, a, there's this one idea, let's try and think of local services, could be the library or whatever, um, that could benefit from that kind of engagement. Where, where everybody's part of it rather than being exactly served. another another one is uh, this notion I, I call it compulsory community tendering where you require this could be a more forceful way of doing it where you could require local government to to take services that are op- operated mm-hmm. in the local area either by some distant corporation or whatever and saying we have to give the local neighborhood the chance to run this now they may not want to but maybe they Such do as a well again, I, I don't know I mean whatever. it could be a health center or a clinic or I don't know I mean there's all mm-hmm. sorts of um, options people will will um, uh, playground park the park. Well, you know, uh, but you've got to give people yeah. reasons to get together locally right. well, and benefit from doing local it. Local communities, I think, is at the heart of so much. But the other thing I'd say, just about all the ideas in the book, some of which mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, I, I taught for a while at Stanford, and the most transformative part of that was teaching at the D School, the design mm-hmm. school at Stanford, yeah. which, as you know, is like really about teaching the methodology right. of innovation that many of the tech firms follow in terms mm-hmm. of r- real focus on users and rapid prototyping and testing. Sure. And, and one of the concepts that we used at the D School that I think is a great way of capturing the status, if you like, of some of the ideas of my book is we have this notion of a sacrificial prototype, Mm -hmm. which is, I know this is a stupid idea. I know it doesn't work, whatever, but I'm going to put it out there just to get the conversation going. Sure. Just so that it's better than just talking about something conceptually. Mm -hmm. Let's let's give a a tangible prototype, if you like, an idea that at least it's something defined, and you can mm-hmm. rip it apart and say, well, that doesn't work, and that won't work, but how about this? Right. And uh, and not all of the ideas in my book, but some of them are of that nature, where right. I'm really Just not... Just going to start the conversation. Exactly. I'm really not attached to saying, you have to implement this exactly right. as I've written it down. Right. They're not. They're ideas. They're not policies. They're there to start a conversation. So, so one of the things that people feel have, you know, and let's talk a little, just a little about the tech thing, which only have a few more minutes, is this idea that tech and social media has brought down this mm-hmm. concept where people are isolated, lonely, engaged in their phones. Yeah. And it's true. It's, it's, it is true. It's, yeah. So, what? How? how with, with the with the sort of the tech lash, and I'm going to mm-hmm. perhaps that your wife does has worked for every tech company in America yes. right now, Rachel Whetstone. Um, but separate from that, how do you look at what's happening with those, and where do you see like you you see, you know, is, is this is it part of the policies to regulate some of this, or do you? Oh yeah, um, but it fits with another part of the. Um, argument on populism, which is the concentration of power in the economy mm-hmm. and the way businesses have got too big, not just in tech, but in every mm-hmm. sector. Yeah. And they've been allowed to swallow up com- yeah. competition and and stop entrepreneurs mm-hmm. or make it much, much harder for entrepreneurs mm-hmm. to challenge them and knock them off their perch. And that story we used to tell, which is a true story about, well, look, you know, whoever, you know, Facebook knocked out MySpace and mm-hmm. Google knocked out um Microsoft, and that's just you know these these tech companies don't stay stay powerful for too long. Feels like that's not really no true anymore. No. That story. No, I think it's like a couple. Now there used to be just one. There's always one. Like I was it IBM or was it AT and T or was it uh, Microsoft? And now there's four or three, and they're rolling down the highway like semi semi trucks. Yes. And nobody can get around them. And they're they're not particularly monopolies, but they kind of are. Like they don't like because they don't really compete with each other. They're not. It's really. I think they squelch innovation. Yeah, and there's a, a yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I would say I, Facebook, Google, and Amazon. And there's an interesting. Um, so that so generally, my argument is we've got to really rethink our whole antitrust approach. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, to be much more aggressive. At the moment, the whole approach is based on this notion of which was really introduced by Robert Bork. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that um, he's best known for the Supreme yes, Court Bork, yes. thing, but actually, his probably greatest policy contribution is this notion of consumer welfare. That's the phrase, which is that. Concentration of economic power, the size of a company, is 
only a problem if it hurts consumer welfare. In other mm. words, if they're not getting decent quality products or services at mm. a reasonable price. Problems they're getting decent quality. Right. A great yeah. quality. I mean, right. the services are amazing. Yeah. And never mind, it's free. Right. So, like, now, when I was learning economics at, at university, we had this notion of predatory pricing, mm -hmm. which is when you price your product right. below marginal cost in order to you know, to, to shove out, to cut out the competition. And that was seen as a problem. Well, now, I mean, it, I mean, predatory pricing is the business model, right. which is we give it away free. And because they know the pr right prices to hit. I was I was literally at a dinner with the head of Walmart the other day, and he's like, God, their pricing at Amazon is so hard to follow. You know what I mean? Like, yes. They're, they, and they were the low-priced leaders, and of course yes. they have to chase it really fast. So I think that the, we've but, got to broaden the but focus. You, you know, you have a company like Amazon, if you're talking about communities, that nobody shops anymore. Or you have Facebook, nobody goes to church anymore. Nobody, Google, you find things. Like, it's all separate. Well, there's two There's two questions. There's the, um, well, the way that it's all united is we've got to broaden it out. We can't, we're not just consumers. Mm -hmm. We're workers and we're family members and we're community members mm -hmm. and we're citizens who vote in elections. You know, we're not just consumers. So the idea that, that, that regulatory framework is just on, are you getting good stuff at cheap prices is right. so, so out of what's going to happen there? What's going to, what do you see? Well, what I'm arguing for, uh -huh. and actually, you know, re recently had a really constructive conversation with the former head of mm -hmm. the FTC about it. And I don't think this is now outlandish at all. This, mm -hmm. this direction of travel is to, is to, is to broaden that definition. So it's not just, and, and the specific proposal I've got in the book, again, this probably mm -hmm. really is one of the sacrificial prototypes, mm -hmm. is we've got to move away from the regulation of antitrust on the basis of the whim of an individual regulator or a, or mm -hmm. a court, a, a judge in a case, and actually have some rules here. And the rule, the, the, the framework that I propose is based on market power, or market concentration, which is over a certain proportion of a market, you're deemed to be a monopoly and you're and and basically part of the public sector. Right. So you can't you pay your a utility. Yes, and you for example, you have maximum pay rates for a for a senior executive, mm -hmm. minimum pay for workers, tight regulation on how you behave, a little bit lower, I don't know, between 10 and 40% yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that's never passing. You're deemed to be dominant and you have mm -hmm. slightly less regulation and let's say you're under 10% of a market, then you're totally competitive and then maybe there's an incentive to do that where you have no regulation or whatever mm -hmm. you know but the, and of course as i say people argue about where are the right levels and so on but and it sort of depends how you define it you know if you define amazon as a retailer it's quite a small percentage online retailer very big book retailer kind of total monopoly basically mm -hmm. yeah. so those things will it's be difficult. argued that's it's difficult. the whole thing you can't pin anything on them as yes easily but i think let's just start the conversation and and try and get a bit more granular about it i think that but there is an issue the, the issues about um tech addiction as mm -hmm. it were i think that is less um amenable to this kind of concentration of power argument because no, even if you had a thousand facebooks mm -hmm. all with incredibly addictive mm -hmm. Um, technology, you'd still have that problem. Right. And so I think, I mean, you know, my solution to it is not to use a phone at all. Yes, and I've, I've not had a phone for six years. That's extreme. Right. But I think that the future, I mean, you know this far better than I do, but as the devices are kind of disappearing and the tech is kind of merging mm -hmm. more into With your body, yeah. I don't, in a weird way, that might make it better. Right. I don't know. Except if it's all pervasive. Yes, but it means you're not literally looking at a screen. Right. I, I don't know. I, I don't, also, I don't, I can't tell how seriously they're taking it, frankly. I think that, um, I was, Ooh, you know, again, massive, well, the tech companies, I mean, I say massive, uh, you know, like disclosure, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. one of the, my, my, my wife currently is at Facebook. Mm -hmm. But so you can, you know, <laughs> dismiss this if you like. But I think it's interesting that in the last year or so, Mark Zuckerberg has started to talk thoughtfully mm -hmm. about, you know, using this phrase, time well spent, which mm -hmm. came from Tristan Harris, the, right. the, the design yeah. ethicist, you know, ethicist who's trying to help the companies do this better. That seems to me a serious engagement with the issue, at least. They're not just blowing it off. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I I'm really, I'm not. The, I, okay, well, that's your view. But um, <laughs> I know it's bullshit. I think that the, um, funnily enough, I, I did, in my past life, I ran this company, Good Business, in the mm -hmm. UK. And one of the and we were a corporate responsibility consulting firm. We worked with big companies. Mm -hmm. And this issue came up a lot in other contexts, particularly utility. We had some utility companies who were being obliged by the government to promote energy no, efficiency. I, do, I think people are And so the question we always, it came up quite a lot. And McDonald's was one of our mm -hmm. clients and so on. And it was like, well, 
how do you make a virtue of, of trying to get your consumers to use your product less? How do you actually make that? I'll look at Patagonia. There's uh, there's a bunch of companies. Yes, I would uh, say it's not impossible. There, there is there are tech leaders. I think Kevin Systrom was one of them. Interesting. You know, uh, very much so. Uh -huh. We've talked about this stuff a lot. He's the only one who ever would engage with me on these topics right. years ago. Um, Ryan Chesky. There's a couple that really. I would say Mark Benioff, when he's not being Mark Benioff, is right. very much so. Um, there's there's a lot. It's just a question of whether they see it as a as not just a duty, like a like mm -hmm. take your medicine, and more as a, this is an ethos. Um, and also, I, th I mean, the, what we tried society. to argue in at Good Business, and I wrote a book called Good Business, Your World Needs You, is like, try and see your social contribution as core. So it's not the sort of add-on and the, right. as you say, the guilt. It's right. like, can you think of a way 14. to genuinely benefit commercially from helping to solve right. social problems right. rather than create them? Absolutely. And one of the things I always say is either, but that requires either, real either you creativity. do something about this or you buy yourself a, a Mercedes that is... Uh, weaponized. You're going to have to have walls, and you're going to have to have right. you know. You know what I mean? You see, yeah. and then the real the populism we don't like so much. The ugly populism yes. will be dangerous for yeah, these yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting. I mean, for example, I mean, you, you know, we talked earlier about the predatory price, giving it away free. Mm -hmm. um, well, if you, you know, if you start charging. I don't know. I don't want to do the job for right. them, but I think there must be creative. It's this combination of of thinking about it, but but you've got to get commercial about it. Otherwise, it will right. never be serious. You've Absolutely. got to rethink 100%, the business model. One hundred percent. All right. Just finishing up. Last thing. What will happen to Trump populism in the next election? And very quickly, because we you have mean, one the, minute. Mid midterms or midterms and going forward. It feels very much as if the um, backlash to Trump's election mm -hmm. will be the dominant. Um, Focus and particularly with with the mobilization of, of women candidates and women voters mm -hmm. um, in response to a combination of both sides, mm -hmm. Trump's victory and, and Hillary Clinton's defeat. That that feels like the story of right. this and, particular and does this, election. Does this the ugly populism peter out as it often does? No, I, I think that, that that's why it's very important that, I mean, I, I, I'm serious about trying to turn this into a, a movement so mm -hmm. that we put something against that that's constructive right. and positive, right. because I don't think it's going away, because I think the problems are getting worse, mm -hmm. The the because they're because precisely because there isn't a policy agenda to deal with the concentration of right. power and, right. and, 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 you know, we haven't talked about immigration, but I think that, you know, the, 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 the mass migration around the world, this is a bigger, bigger right. and bigger issue, right. Right. and conflicts around the world leading to displacement of people and refugees. You know, it's, just it's interesting because it easy. does strike me, and then we have to finish, is um, a lot, sometimes when Trump says things, he's directionally correct and has a lizard brain for the right thing, but always has is, is focused on the wrong thing. Like with tech companies, like with the with the right. their conservative the bias. I'm like, no, they're not. They're like, but there is concentration. Like, but there is a problem over there. Yeah. But the but he's always identifying the exact wrong problem. You know what I mean? Exactly the wrong problem. And then over here, they're doing the real damage. I think one thing I would say is that he's got a, he's 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 absolutely right about China. I mean, we haven't mm -hmm. got time to probably get right. into that, but right. I do think that. That's a real shift in policy from where you saw the, the consensus in the foreign policy establishment, which is like, if you suck up to China, engage with them, whatever, they're going to get better on human rights. They're going to become more of a market economy. It's going to be, yeah. it's going to be absolutely, absolutely, totally no. wrong. No. I, you know, I'm on that side too. Yeah, exactly. But not the way he's doing it. Like, I'm like, what are you doing? Well, it's not I about think, plastic toys. It's correct. Funny. But, you know, there, there is sign that, I agree, but there is sign that there's sort of the, the, the regime which looks so powerful and vulnerable, you know, even a year ago, there are mm -hmm. little signs of it wobbling a bit actually. Actually, and, and saying, hey, I think second. they're racing right past us. I well, think we're focusing on their plastic toys and they're busy innovating the future of AI and everything else. Well, that's why we've got to both uh, impede them from doing that and support our People own efforts. We're focusing on the plastic toys. Like, that's over. I, don't th I think that he, he may be in, in one that's side, but I don't think the policy generally, I think that there's yes. the smart people in there who actually get the broader Yes, picture. absolutely. All right, Steve, this is great. That Your book is called uh, Positive Populism. Um, it's available now on Amazon. <laughs> hey, no, no, okay, I'm going to say this. <laughs> okay. I paid for a, a okay. site called positivepopulism.org, right. which also enables you to buy on Barnes & Noble and right. independent retailers good, and good, so on. Good, good. Well, you should read it. Steve's a really thoughtful person in Silicon Valley, and it's always nice to have him um, and talk about these issues. They're very important ones going forward for, for the whole country, and we do have to move in a positive way. And you, you do sound a little little lefty now. I don't know what's <laughs> happened. You've been hanging out in Palo Alto too long. <laughs> 
No, it's it's Fox News. It's turned me left. <laughs> are you? Yeah, that's right. Okay, the left wing of Fox. No, right, I'm here joking. We are. I don't like the. Le- I think the left right thing. I hate I, it. I don't Everybody buy it at all. It. Yeah, they're, they're they're exhausting. They're more exhausting on the right right now, but they're exhausting on all sides. Anyway, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes of Rico Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You just want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Steve, where can people follow you online? Nowhere, right? At, no, I, tw- I do Twitter at, okay. at Steve Hilton X. Okay, at Steve Hilton X and at this popular... popular Positivepopulism.org. Positivepopulism.org. Um, and also you can go look at Crown Pack. He's not involved anymore, but it really is an interesting company that he started. Uh, now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Saturday. Tune in then. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.